Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Sergeant Rashawn Drayton. How are you today, Rashawn? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking some time. I've known Rashawn for about 20 years. Uh, we both started working in Santa Barbara around the same time. And I just wanted to talk to you because, you know, I see you around over the years. You know, you're doing your thing. I'm doing my thing. And uh, we're at this moment in time with all of this uh, controversy and emotions and feelings around the death of George Floyd and the ensuing sort of protests and marches that followed. And we sort of had a big deal here in Santa Barbara, too. We had three protests and marches that got a significant amount of crowds. And I wanted to just sort of talk to you a little bit about sort of your take as a black police officer and what that means for you and how you've been able to deal with all of the the issues going on. Obviously, you have a lot of support in this community. There's also people who uh, say a lot of things about officers um, and, and you know how they should treat people. So I just wanted to sort of talk to you about those issues and talk to you a little bit about your life too. You know, you're a little bit younger than me, but we're both, uh, we both try to be good dads and uh, we can talk a little about, you know, fatherhood and what that's like too as well. But why don't we just dive right in and talk a little bit about what's it like right now to be a, a police officer, you're a sergeant in Santa Barbara, and what's it like to be a black sergeant in Santa Barbara? You know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like for me, um, it's probably going to be a little bit different than it is for a lot of my officers that, are, that aren't black, right? I, I, I know that there's officers out there dealing with people that are, you know, getting, you know, the finger and people kind of, you know, wanting to stick it to the man however they can. And that's not been my experience over the last three, four weeks. Like my experiences are people are, are friendly, they're waving at me. And I think that a lot of that goes to just the community that we live in. I mean, I do think we live in a, a good community and I haven't gotten a lot of the hate vitriol that other officers are, are receiving. And I'm hearing stories from other cops that work with me that, that are, are getting some of that. But mm-hmm. by and large, I'm not I'm not getting that. I'm getting a lot of waves and people, you know, virtual high fives and whatnot. And, uh, you know, especially as of the last week or two, there's a lot of people that are coming and showing their support, whether they're coming to the station and bringing us something, cookies, cards, you know, um, signs that they've made with their families and just a lot of actual community support from people that are appreciative of what we do, appreciative of how we do it. And, you know, for the last few weeks, I've really seen our community kind of kind of starting to come and stand up with us and say, hey, I, we know there are things happening, you know, globally, nationally, but we also recognize that that's not what's happening in our Santa Barbara bubble and that, you know, we have good cops that treat people fairly with respect and are going out honorably doing the job in a way that, you know, keeps our communities safe. Um, and for me, that it feels pretty good to be in that situation as a law enforcement officer. You know, we were talking for a few minutes uh, just last Saturday, I think it was. Um, Fourth of saw, July. Yeah, I saw you downtown. And um, I saw a couple of people go out of their way to say hi to you or, or thank you. Was that happening before all of this protest, just during your time in Santa Barbara? Would people do that to you, or is that a new thing? You know, it, we go we go through phases, right? Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like it's event-based. So when we had the, you know, the mudslides in Montecito, you know, people were really appreciative of first responders. You know, I remember working uh, after September 11th. Uh, 2001, and we got a lot of that community support. So generally, when there's a big event, you know, our community will come out and let us know. But we get it pretty. I mean, there's always times where people are bringing cookies by the station or thanking us for what we do. And I feel like over the last probably 10 years, I've seen a lot more of that community support and people coming and thanking us for doing what we do and having their kids come and say thank you. And um, 
But yeah, I think it's a pretty common thing. And what ended up happening was after George Floyd, I think for a couple of weeks, we weren't really seeing that as much. It was kind of more the opposite. But then after about two weeks, that that went away, and now we're kind of getting back to people hey, thanking you for or thanking us for what we do and saying, hey, we really appreciate having you here and what you do for our community. How does it feel sort of looking at what's happening on the national stage and locally? There's a lot of anti-cop sentiment going on right now. We've heard lots of people call for defunding of the police. Uh, there's a lot of feeling of police need massive training, new training, learning de-escalation sort of changes. What's that like, you know, when people are really scrutinizing your profession on the national stage and locally? Do you take that personally or what is that? You know, as a a 20-year law enforcement, you know, officer, like I don't take it personally. I realize a lot of that is tied to the uniform and what that uniform means to different people and different people have different experiences with that uniform. So a lot of their opinions and things that they're saying are going to be based on those experiences or experiences of those close to them. Mm-hmm. So I, one, I, I don't take it personally. Um, I recognize that, you know, a lot of people are calling for a lot of change, you know, for law enforcement. And the only thing I'd say to that is that I really do think it's geographical. I think that in California, you know, California requires us to maintain a pretty strict, um, training. I mean, we go to the police academy, which is six or seven months long. It's 40 hours a week when you're in a classroom environment learning about the laws and how to enforce them. Um, We also have to do continued annual training. And there's things that we have to do every year that we have to get signed off and, you know, eight, 10 training hour days. So we actually get quite a bit of training and the amount of training and classes I've been to in my, in my 20 years as a cop, it's not just that you go to the academy and then you hit the street and then you're kind of done. We're constantly doing training and constantly having to log on to our online portals through California Post, which is the Peace Officer Standards of Training. It's like the, you know, governing body for our training and making sure that we're staying up on all of our training. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, globally, within the United States, at least, there's different states have different requirements for their officers. And I think that, you know, for a cop in California to be compared to a cop in, you know, the Midwest or the South where maybe their training requirements are different, I just, I think, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges, right? I think that, you know, California cops do get really, really good training. And I know here at the police department, when you're talking about de-escalation, that is a part of our training. We've been talking about that for quite a few years. These are things that we train our officers to do. You're looking at implicit bias training and racial profiling training. These are things that I've been doing my whole career, but really the last four or five years, it's been, we've done a lot of training. We've met with just communities here in our community. We've met with other community groups and we talked to them about the things that, you know, they want to see from their officers. You know, we were having meetings with LGTQ, QTB. We did that probably four or five years ago where they came in and actually presented training and learning about pronouns and how to address people properly so that we're not, you know, one, offending people, but also giving them the respect that they're due. So this is stuff that we've been doing in, in, in our agency for a, a long time. So when you see people saying that, you know, cops need to be defunded, I think that you have to kind of look at what cops you're talking about and what, what level of training do they have and what level of training do you want them to get to? Maybe having a base level uh, training for, you know, officers, you know, within the whole United States and not just having every state be responsible for how they train their cops. Yeah, this this issue of, of racial profiling, like, do you think that, Help me understand. A lot of people of color feel as though they're racially profiled in terms of, you know, maybe uh, 
they're doing the same thing. Maybe, maybe a teenage kid, um, you know, who, who's a person of color, is on a skateboard, rolling, you know, around State Street or in the neighborhood, and maybe um, a cop will approach them. But maybe, like, you know, a kid, you know, the surfer-type kid with the shaggy blonde hair, maybe doesn't get approached by the cops, you know. is the, Can you talk a little bit about, do you think that there's implicit bias when it comes to how you decide to uh, approach somebody or pull someone over, and and you know how do you how do you sort of guard against that? Just you, as, yeah. you know, implicit bias is obviously a real thing, but I think the thing with implicit bias is that sometimes it's potentially motivating your decisions and to stop people or do things, but you don't necessarily know that it's there, yeah. right? So I've stopped plenty of scraggly haired surfer looking kids on skateboards and I've stopped, you know, Hispanic kids on skateboards. I mean, honestly, like the way the person looks to me has no bearing on why I'm stopping a person. And a lot of times it has to do with the violation itself and not the person committing the violation. Right. So, but again, that's in our bubble here in Santa Barbara. If you look at cops that, you know, are in the Midwest or the South or back East and say, you know, I know that there are places in the South where, you know, black people stay with black people, white people stay with black people, and there are white people there that, you know, using the N-word is still a common, you know, term that they use to how they describe people. Now you take that cop and you have him patrolling an all-black neighborhood and then seeing that on a daily, yearly, you know, basis, it's probably going to influence and direct the way they do their job. So you have cops that are, you know, serving a, a part of the population that they don't interact with or outside of work or don't even necessarily like or have an affinity for. And now they're going to serve that community that, you know, maybe 90 percent black. And you're wondering why we're having issues. It's like, well, if they don't respect the person as a person, you know, just on the surface, when they go in and have to police and have to enforce laws and other things, it's probably not going to look very good. And so that's kind of one of the things I think I have recognized or seen over the last, you know, five, 10 years, just as I've matured in my law enforcement career, is there are a lot of people that are serving communities, one that they're not from or that they don't have any respect for. And now they're going in and having to police those communities. And you're going to hear and see things on videos and on YouTube and things. You're like, man, how is that person a cop? It's like, well, you know, like, again, different states have different requirements and certain things are going to be allowed in some places. I th- That would not fly here. Yeah. If I had an officer here stopping someone solely specifically because of that person and what they look like and not because of that violation that wouldn't that wouldn't go well. That's a good transition. Let's talk a little bit about you. You know, you you've been fortunate enough to work in the community that you grew up in and a lot of us who grew up here uh, have not had that opportunity. You know, you and I are similar. You know, we chose to be here. Tell me a little bit about your story. You grew up in Santa Barbara. So you're a Santa Barbara kid. So when you're working here, this is this is also your home. You know, it's your job, but you know this place as well as anyone. So can you just talk to me a little bit about where you went to school and your upbringing and sort of just what your your youth was like? Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in Santa Barbara. I was born at Cottage Hospital. Um, I grew up on the east side of Santa Barbara. I went to Cleveland Elementary School. I went to Santa Barbara Junior High School and then Santa Barbara High School where, you know, I graduated few decades ago, but um, my upbringing was was pretty awesome. You know, we played outside until the streetlights came on with our friends and rode our bikes and skateboards and were daredevils running around the neighborhood, you know, obviously getting in the kind of trouble that kids get into, nothing that's going to have any lasting, you know, effects, but, you know, things that helped us learn along the way what was acceptable and what wasn't. Um, I graduated high school and a week later I left Santa Barbara and I, w- I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I went to boot camp oh, yeah. and I spent four years in the Marine Corps, you know, traveling the world and, and, and learning about just not myself, but about leadership and how to kind of how to perform in the adult world. Right. So I was in the infantry and um, 
prior to getting out, my job as a non-commissioned officer was obviously to support my younger Marines and to train them and to teach them and to be be a leader to kind of teach them from the experiences that I had up to that point. So late 90s, I get out of the Marine Corps, I come back to Santa Barbara, I work at a nightclub downtown for about a year. And while I'm working at this nightclub, I meet you know, several officers who would come in and do their bar checks and other things. And, you know, once you kind of get to know them, you know, they kind of got to know me and realized that, hey, I'm a local guy with, you know, a military background, never been in serious trouble. And they're like, hey, we're having a test in August. This was three or four months after I'd gotten out of the Marine Corps. And I'm like, they're like, hey, you should give it a shot. I'm like, eh, never really thought about being a cop, but, you know, why not? I'm working at this bar. I'm not going to do this forever. And still was kind of pursuing some options. I had enrolled at City College and taken a couple classes just to kind of kind of see what I was going to, what was going to be interested to me, um, or interesting to me. Um, and I went to the test, I tested, I went through the interview process and ended up eventually getting hired with the police department. Mm. So it wasn't like I sought out to be a cop. It wasn't throughout my military experience. I thought I was going to be a cop. It just kind of gradually occurred. And, you know, I'm really fortunate that the job kind of found me because I feel like it's a perfect fit for not only my personality, but just kind of who I am as a person. You know, a lot of the things in the job, you know, really appeal to me. And I really love the fact that I'm born and raised in Santa Barbara. I know a lot of people here. I know the streets here. I know the problem areas and I know the people here, which really then helps me to interact and deal with the people in Santa Barbara. I mean, obviously Santa Barbara is not like a lot of other places. And um, frankly, I feel like the buy-in that, you know, I get for being able to work in my community comes from being a product of this community. And when I'm out on the streets, you know, knowing what I want, what I would as a kid or, you know, as a citizen, how I'd want to see the police department function and knowing that I can be a part of, of that and giving people kind of what they expect here in our community. Um, so I've really been fortunate to be able to stay in my hometown and work here. And I've been here, you know, 20 years now doing this job in my, my local community. And it's just, I think it's really been awesome. Yeah. When I was, you know, as I went to DP and uh, I, I thought about a career in the military too, I was in ROTC in high school and um, that was really fun. You know, you started to get that sort of foundation and mm-hmm. that, that training and, you know, the uniform and sort of, you know, I did a lot of the parades and that sort of thing. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, I seriously thought about going to the military, but um, I always, you know, I, I went to City College instead mm-hmm. and sort of like, well, maybe, you know, it's on the table. And that's where, like, I found journalism. And right. It was like at City College where I had, like, the first teacher who told me, like, hey, you can do something. It was, I didn't really have much of that beforehand. But when you were growing up, you know, when you're, you know, you're in junior high, high school, like, did you, did you know you wanted to go to the military or was it just? No, I didn't. You know, I was in the, you know, marching band in elementary school, junior high or junior high and high school. Um, I did a lot with music. I kind of knew as I kind of wrapped up toward high school that music wasn't going to be like the lifelong passion for me, like that I was going to try to make a living out of that. And it just so happened that I'm hanging out in the band room one day and, uh, you know, I, I had already talked to a couple army recruiters, but they kind of weren't you know, meeting when they said they were going to meet, they weren't really punctual showing up. And I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really dig that. And there was a Marine Corps recruiter who came into the band room one day because he had had a relationship with my band instructor, you know, like in regards to he was a former student and he came into the, you know, the band room and he's in his Marine Corps uniform and he's looking good. And we start talking and then he sets up a meeting with me and he's five minutes early, he's punctual and he sits me down and just tells me kind of 
all of the things that the Marine Corps has to offer. And for me, like this is, you know, January of my senior year in high school. I've got, you know, five months before I graduate and I don't really have a plan. And a lot of things he was telling me just really resonated with me that I'd be able to, you know, learn a trade. I'd, I'd be able to make some lifelong friends. I'd be able to travel the world and, and do all these great things. And to a, a person in that, you know, came from a family that wasn't super rich and didn't have any, really any money. Like it seemed great independent for me to be able to kind of, make my own path in life and not have to be relying on a parent or having to stay living at home after I graduated high school. So again, we're in January of my senior year and a week within meeting him, I had, you know, I had already turned 18 and I signed on the dotted line saying, Hey, I'm going to go do this for four years. So, you know, I had a few more months of high school I graduated high school and a week later I was at boot camp. So there was no, it wasn't like something I ever thought I was going to do. I really didn't know what I was going to do, but not just like with the military, but with police work, it was never anything that I had this grand idea that this is something I want to do when I want to kind of gear myself for it. I just really tried to make good decisions in life so that nothing was off the table. And just kind of, I kind of fell into not only the Marine Corps, but then also kind of police work. And they ended up being two of the best things that I ever could have done for my life and my ability to stay in Santa Barbara, be able to do this job here that I love. And I've just been really, really fortunate. What, tell me about boot camp. Where'd you do that at? I did it at MCRD, which is Marine Corps Recruit Depot down in San Diego. Uh-huh. That was a culture shock. You know, I you go from living at home and, you know, with your parents and, going to school and knowing kind of the rules and the the lay of the land and you kind of get it figured out, especially as you hit your late teens. And then you go into, you know, you get on this bus with a bunch of people that look scared and don't know what to expect for the next three months. And then you pull up at boot camp and they just get on the bus and start yelling at you. And uh-huh. it's like something you've never seen before. I mean, you can obviously go on YouTube or anything else and see what those first meetings of, you know, Marine Corps recruits and their drill instructors is like. But being in that moment, it's dark, it's late, and you're, you know, the first three days of boot camp, you're doing processing and other things, you're not really sleeping, you're just, your whole world is being turned upside down, and you don't know what is going on. And it takes a while to kind of figure out kind of how it works, the way that people are yelling at you, but it's not necessarily a personal thing, it's just, they're just there to, to rock you to your core, mm-hmm. and then build you, you know, they're going to tear you down, and then they're going to build you up in, into the, 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 the Marine, the way that they want you to be, and there's a, a a variety of reasons as to why they do that. You don't necessarily understand it when someone's six feet away from your face yelling at you, but you do come to kind of understand it and figure it out. And then you, you start to thrive. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it definitely for someone like me who didn't do well with people telling them what to do or whatever, hadn't really given that too much thought when I went into the military. And it was definitely a shock to my system to, you know, go from having pretty good independence as this 18 year old senior to now here I'm in the Marine Corps having to tell someone when I'm going to the bathroom or, you know, you have to get permission to do certain things and you have to ask. And even, you know, throughout my whole enlistment, like you don't ever do anything without telling people what you're doing. You know, there's safety reasons for that, but you do, there's a tether there that, you know, for someone who's independent, it can be a little bit difficult. Um, you learn to assimilate, you learn to deal with it. And I, again, I feel like that Marine Corps experience for me was one of the things that kind of helped shape me into the person that I was. It gave me some discipline and, you know, some follow through. And, you know, growing up in Santa Barbara, you know, in a single parent household with my mother who worked pretty hard to support my sister and I didn't have a father or that male kind of role model in the home. So a lot of the things that, you know, people get maybe from their dads or whatever, I didn't really have that. So I feel like this was kind of me tying it all together and learning some things that I hadn't maybe learned earlier so that I could get through life and be successful. Tell me about your toughest or worst boot camp experience. I mean, I imagine it's, I mean, it's brutal physically, but also emotionally, but do you have any, anything you'd like to share about how you got through or overcame something that was super tough? 
you know, yeah, boot camp was, it was difficult, you know, from a physical fitness standpoint, I've always been in fairly decent shape. So that stuff wasn't really super difficult. I think the hardest thing, and I don't have a specific story because I mean, that whole three months of boot camp is kind of a blur at this point in my life. And, um, but I think that I do really remember, um, you know, you'd be laying in your rack at the end of the day and your days were long. You know, you got up at 530 in the morning and you went all day long and, you know, you're laying in your rack, you know, 830, nine o'clock at night and lights are going out and you're just trying to process all the things that you're going through. And, you know, there's people that were having a difficult time, you know, guy in my platoon, you know, started wetting the bed and it was just something weird. And he ended up, you know, getting separated and whatnot. But it's just a shock to your system. And there's trauma inducing a little bit. A little. It can be for some people. And, you know, for me, I didn't necessarily have the trauma of it, but I just recognized that we were all there doing the best that we could. And it was very, very difficult. And then you start learning over time to kind of lean on those other people and you start supporting each other and lifting people up when they're struggling. You know, if you have a guy that, you know, struggles a little bit with PT, you put yourself, you know, right next to him on PT and you push him and you help him because at that point, the people you started with, you want to finish with, these are your brothers and you got to kind of support them. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really, it was really the first time in, you know, my life, I didn't really play team sports or anything, you know, in, in high school or anything. So this was, you know, being a part of a team and kind of learning what it's like to be a part of a team and recognizing that for all your strengths, you may have some weaknesses that other people are going to have to help you with. And on the flip side, you're going to be that for other people when, when they need it. And yeah. so it was really just that first indoctrination to a brotherhood and, and supporting people that come from different walks of life, from different places in the country that have different life experiences. I mean, when you're in the Marine Corps, you're dealing with people from all over the country and they all have different experiences and different ways of growing up. You know, I served with people that had never interacted with a person of color before because of where they came from, you know? And so, you know, they may have had some, you know, implicit biases of their own and having to work through those things. And when you're 19, 20 years old and you just for the life of you can't understand why someone, you know, treats you the way that they do. And a lot of it isn't necessarily, again, personal. It's just they don't you're foreign to them. Yeah, I did a, a story early in my career. I spent five days on the USS Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And uh, so it was like, you know, a Navy warship. And like we had to fly in and land, you know, you're mm-hmm. going super fast. And all of a sudden these cables lock your your plane into mm-hmm. place in a second. But what I remember about that was like the intensity. So the whole story was live like they do. I mean, not obviously, mm-hmm. but like a journalist would. <clears throat> but you had to get up in the morning. And I remember I ate so much. Like you get up at five and you'd eat. Mm-hmm. And, and actually like 4.30 you'd eat. you go to the cafeteria and just pig out, right? But you had to because the amount of work that you did, like by 7 a.m. you were hungry again. Right. You were constantly going up the ship, down the ship, the stairs, oh, over yeah. and over. And, it was so intense and it was so rigid and it, that was just like a, nothing. A, a five-day, you yeah. know, a sort, sort of it. But I remember just constantly sweating, constantly like being – exerting myself just from the, all the amount of work that, you know, in the military that they were doing. And it was just – it was so impressive but also a good reminder, you know, like that when you're not in the military, you kind of forget about all of the intensity of oh, that yeah. and that's, sacrifice. And that's every day. Yeah. You know, I did – two six-month deployments on naval ships. You know, I was part of an amphibious ready group where, you know, the the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. So essentially they get us to where we need to go and then we disembark the ships and go on the land and do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did two six-month deployments on ships. So imagine six months on ship, you know, you get up, 
you eat a big breakfast, you go, you run the flight deck for a while, you work out, you do some work, you're back at lunch at 1130, you eat again, and then you're doing something physically exerting for the rest of the day, you're training on ship. And then, yeah, it being on ship is you would think it's easy, but it, it, it really isn't. And it's every day. And then you hit land and you do some training missions or doing whatever you're doing for a while. And it's a lot. I mean, it was a lot, but it was some of the best times in my life, you know, with the, you know, with Facebook and everything else. Now it's so great to be able to interact with guys that I served with and mm. somebody rolls through town, you know, we meet up, have a cup of coffee and it's like no time has ever passed because you spent so much time with these people, you know, in foreign ports and going on liberty with your buddies and going to all these different countries and seeing how other people in the world live. I mean, you want to talk about an education, just hop on a ship, spend six months going from port to port, mm-hmm. getting off the ship and, you know, you know, on the same deployment that you might be hitting, you know, Thailand or Singapore or Malaysia or something else, you also may hit Australia, you may hit some countries in the Middle East. And so for me, seeing, you know, the way people live in the Middle East versus how they live in Australia, you know, it's vastly different. Mm. And that was a really, really good education for me. So were you traveling or were you stationed in a certain spot? So I was stationed at Camp Pendleton. Okay. And the way it works with the, obviously with the, with the infantry is you, you have a workup training cycle. And then when that workup training cycle is done, you hop on a ship for six months and you travel what they call West Packs. And if for us, we're in the Western Pacific and you go from port to port, but you're really just an amphibious ready group. There's, I want to say in the group, there's probably 12 ships and there's three of them that house, you know, Marines. And you're just like a ready force to be able to, to deploy anywhere. Um, in, in the Western Pacific or Persian Gulf. Mm. So for me, I know a big thing was uh, we were on one of our West Packs and it was back when uh, Saddam Hussein wasn't letting in the uh, weapons instru- inspectors. Mm. And I, you know, I have this vivid memory of being up on above deck, you know, I'm just out looking at the horizon because you sit on ship and you just kind of hang out and look out at the endless ocean. And I remember seeing one ship off to our left that was one of our other sister ships. There's a ship off to our right. And all of a sudden, all three ships make a 180-degree turn, and we start steaming for the Persian Gulf because they were having some issues with Saddam Hussein there. And that feeling like, okay, something's going on. I don't know where we're going. don't know what's about to go down, but there's obviously something going on. And so it's for us to be that amphibious ready group where if something hits the fan, we're there, and we can be there within a couple of days and have Marines, troops on the ground, ready to do whatever we're needed to do. So, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. (laughs) And I was, you know, in my mind fortunate that I went in three years after the Persian Gulf War and I and I discharged two years before September 11th yeah. so I was in during peacetime but I still got to see some of these conflict areas in the in the world and and spend time on the ground there so um, definitely an interesting experience so when you were out you came back to Santa Barbara and were you a bouncer or a security guard or what, so what I started off as a bouncer at Q's um, Q's. I Q's. So remind me where that was. 409 I've, I've been State. Q's, it's now but... Matrix, but it, it was okay. 409 State. I remember and that now. Yeah, yeah, you know, we had a bar on every floor and um, one out on the patio. And, you know, I'd been kind of – so for me, on weekends when we didn't have anything going on down at Camp Pendleton, I'd hop on the Amtrak and come up to Santa Barbara. I'd get here late Friday night. I'd hang out with my friends Friday, Saturday. Sunday I'd be on the train back down to Camp Pendleton. And so, you know, once I hit – the age to be able to hit the bars. I started going downtown with my friends and Q's was the place that we would hang out. And I got to know some of the bouncers and the manager there. And I, and I remember hitting up the manager about two weeks before I got out, said, Hey, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps in a couple of weeks and I'd like to work here. And I got out of the Marine Corps on like a Tuesday or Wednesday and Friday night I was there working as a bouncer and I worked as a bouncer for a few months. And then, um, saw that although I enjoyed that, there was more money to be made working, you know, behind the bar doing something else. So, um, after a few months, I became the bar back, and my job was just oh. to serve all the all the bars, mm-hmm. um, you know, making sure they had beer and 
clean, you know, glasses and everything else, but it paid really, really well. And for a guy that's, you know, 22, you know, just out of the military, you know, making a great money working at a hot spot downtown, like it was pretty awesome. You know, I work in Fiesta, I'm standing at the front door and, you know, a woman comes up to me and, you know, essentially is like, hey, how many, how many girlfriends do you have? And I'm like, none. She goes like, you just have a beautiful smile, something along those lines. Uh-huh. Well, 20 years later, you know, we're still together. That's my wife. Uh-huh. I met her while I was working downtown. Yeah. And so, yeah, I had a lot of good times working at Q's, met my wife there. Um, but yeah, just, it was an, it, it, I had never thought I'd work at a nightclub, you know, for, you know, but you get out of the Marine Corps and you're trying to figure out options and stuff. And it was a good fit for me for that year while I was transitioning from the military to, you know, ultimately law enforcement. Right. So that's a testament, the importance of taking that risk, right? Like she doesn't ever tell you you have a nice smile and you maybe you right. know, never interact with her, you know? Right. So that's, that's so, that's so cool. The yeah. way life happens sometimes, right? It's just a chance encounter right. and, you know, it was during Fiesta, you know, uh-huh. and bars are crap are packed and, you know, Obviously, when you work in that kind of job, you're going to talk to people and interact with people on a pretty regular basis. But something about that interaction that sparked, you know, you know, a 20 year relationship. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that in a second. But when you're working as the, you know, at Q's, are you thinking about what your long term career is going to be at that at some point or are you just enjoying it in the moment? I was enjoying it at the moment. I, w- I was working at Q's. I was also working at a couple of stores uh, in Paseo Nuevo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had at one point, I think, three jobs right when I got in the military because I'm used to getting up at 530 in the morning and going all day. Mm-hmm. So having like one job wasn't going to be enough. I didn't want any f- real free time, if you will. So I was keeping myself pretty busy with work as I figured it out because I didn't want to just sit around and do nothing and then come up with a plan like I didn't necessarily have a plan but I didn't want to be sitting around doing nothing so again three jobs right when I got out of the Marine Corps and and, and managed that for a while and um, yeah I didn't have a plan I didn't know what I was going to do I just I wasn't thinking that I was going to work in the nightclub industry forever but I didn't from day to day I wasn't I, I wasn't formulating a plan and I feel like I've been pretty lucky that like I said things kind of just fall into your lap and you know you're living your life you're a good person you're making good responsible choices things are going to happen for you i think based on that yeah and so you know you reminded me of when uh we first met was back when i was covering city hall and i'm sitting in the back row there and you know you're working uh you know at city hall you know sort of you know as um the officer who's overseeing the the council at the time what um you know what have, what's it been like to be a police officer in your hometown i mean how have you enjoyed that you know, I've really, really enjoyed it. You know, I, I still, you know, run into people that just knew me as a kid that were just like, man, I cannot believe you became a cop. That's like the <laughs> furthest thing that I ever thought that you would have done. Mm-hmm. But on the same note, they're like, but at the same time, you were, you know, generous and kind and caring. And you, you know, I can see the job working out well for you. So um, it's been great being a, a police officer in my hometown. You know, I feel like I know the city pretty well. You know, I've been on some special details. You know, I've been a bicycle patrol officer. I've been a detective. I've been a patrol officer and, you know, working patrol and being able to work, you know, the east side for a few years, which is where I grew up. You know, it was so cool to be, you know, sitting at a stop sign, you know, waiting for violations or something and having people walk by that a parent of someone that I grew up with or whatever, and they <laughs> want to stop and say hi. So it's great uh-huh. to be a cop in your hometown and just see people that you know and, you know, it's really awesome to be working and you come across somebody and you see their name and you'd be like, Hey, are you related to so-and-so? Oh, Hey, that's my uncle. That's my dad. That's why it gives you this instant, not only credibility, but uh, the ability to build rapport with someone because you know, somebody that they know and you can talk about that person and they know that you're, you know, they may have heard of you from that person or whatever. Maybe it just gives you the ability to build connections 
quickly and a lot easier than if you come into a situation cold and don't really know anyone. So have you had to arrest somebody, like a friend, someone you knew, someone you grew up with. Have you had those moments too? I have. Yeah. And you know, I've arrested people that I knew. I've arrested people that I grew up with. And again, for me, you can have a cop that doesn't know you or care about you. I mean, at this point, if you've put yourself in a situation where you're getting arrested, what cop do you want? The guy that's not going to treat you with respect? Or do you want the person that's going to treat you like a person? And yeah, we all have things that happen in life. We all make choices, but I don't judge you based on those choices. That's not my job. My job is to make an arrest if the elements of a crime have been met, and I'm still going to treat you like the person that you are. And I think that I've never had an adverse response to arresting someone that I grew up with. Obviously, maybe in that moment, it didn't. It wasn't great yeah but you know a month or two later you see them on the street and they come over and give you a hug and it's just like yeah you were doing your job i put myself in that situation you were doing your job and i think that when you can take someone's freedom away and they still see you as a person that you are not as the uniform i think that's huge yeah and we know it's extraordinarily dangerous to be a police officer can you talk to me about how you've been able to uh, navigate situations have you had any situations where it's been sort of uh, difficult or, you know, really sort of like, oh, my goodness, you know, I've um, had an altercation or, you know, I mean, can you talk a little I mean, about yeah, the danger I've, side of it? It's a dangerous job for sure. And I think a lot of our training kind of helps to kind of prepare you for that. But preparing for th- something and then actually being involved in that situation, you know, you are going to revert you to your training. You've had people charge you? And that sort I've of had thing. people charge me. I've had people swing at me. I've had people try to hit me. I've had people throw stuff at me. You know, I was involved in a shooting my first nine months on the job in front of Velvet Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I've seen kind of the gamut, you know, I've had pursuits in the town where I've had to chase somebody down and foot pursuits where people run for me. And I've fought with people that didn't want to go back to prison and, you know, keeping yourself, you know, healthy mentally and and physically is, is a really important part of this job, you know, working out at the gym, you know, finding a way to keep yourself physically strong, Mm -hmm. but also recognizing that these, all of these kind of instances and doing this job for a long period of time it takes a toll on you so also to making sure you've got a healthy outlet so that you can kind of de-stress and come back to work and hopefully not be carrying what you what you had the, the week prior mm. you know but yeah 20 years in law enforcement yeah you're not going to get through it unscathed without you know fighting with a few people and having <laughs> people that just don't want to go back to jail or go back to prison and it's you know for them you know they want to get away it's not necessarily that they're trying to hurt you. I mean, I mean, obviously there are some people out there that want to hurt you, but a, a lot of times when someone's fighting, just trying to get away, you know, and they're throwing punches, it's because they just don't want to go back to whatever that situation was that they, they don't want to, whether it's jail or prison. So Right. And, you know, all, all jobs, all professions, everybody in life, you, you learn from situations and you, you, you figure out how you can do things differently. You know, I'll write a story and I'll think it's the best story in the world and then, I'll read it again and sort of think, oh, I missed an opportunity there. Or somebody will call me and say something. I did a story recently about adoption, and I had the line, gave up, the mother gave up the child for adoption. And I had somebody very nice, you know, email me and say, that language is a little insensitive, you know, because, you know, mom doesn't give up for adoption. They, they choose adoption, you know, sort of that sort of that language and sort of like journalism you're always learning and, and in all professions. Have you had moments in your career where you're like, you, you know, not maybe even not a regret, but I would have done that differently or I learned from that moment or, you know, I'm a better police officer today now because of something that happened yesterday. Have you I had anything like that? in law enforcement, that's one of the great perks of this job is that every day you can learn something different. Every day, you know, 
you can learn something. I mean, I've been work, doing the shop for 20 years, and recently I learned something from an officer that had a year on. So as long as you're open and receptive and keep a humility about you, you can constantly be learning in this job. I mean, there are so many things that we have to know, whether it's, you know, law, policy, procedure. Um, there's just a lot out there. And, you know, you try to take in as much as you can, but, you know, you can only take in so much at times. So it is, you know, one of the things that with uh, maturity, you learn different techniques and ways to do things. And, you know, the, the, the cop me, you know, at year one versus the cop me at year 10 versus year 20 is going to be different. And you're just hoping that there is a growth and you're hoping that you are learning from mistakes. You know, obviously, as a cop, you, you're not going to always get it right. You just hope that if you don't get it right, it's not going to be something that puts somebody at risk or get somebody hurt. You know, if you do an arrest wrong and you do the administration portion of it wrong and the case gets thrown out, then, yeah, you don't feel great about that. But no one's been, you know, perilously injured. You know, whereas if, you know, there's certain parts of our job, if you get it wrong, and as we've seen in, in places nationally, some people get it wrong and that can have a catastrophic, you know, end for someone, you know. Sure. One of the things that has always struck me about you and, you know, seeing your social media is like you seem to uh, have embraced fatherhood 100% wholeheartedly. And that's like something as a fellow dad. And it's important, you know, for, for me to be a good present dad and, feels like, you know, you are that as well, at least, you know, from what I know about you. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, like, personal life and yeah, uh, your I mean, children and your wife and all that? Yeah, so I've been married, I think, uh, going on 13 years now. We've been together for 20, and um, we've got a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old, both daughters. And, yeah, that's, you know, as you know, as a father, like, the moment, you know, you find out you're going to be expecting a child you're like okay got some time to prepare but i don't really know what i'm going to be doing we'll figure it out as it goes along and you do you that first baby comes and you know we had the fortune of you know both of our children were born at home we you know didn't do hospital births we did you know doulas and midwives and it was amazing to be there to be able to be the person that you know catches your kid you know coming out and you have that you know, the moment she's born, I'm able to touch her and hold her. And it does. It changes your perspective, things that you thought you knew about the world and about life. You know, as soon as you've got this, you know, completely reliant being that's completely reliant on you and your spouse, like it changes things. It cha And if it doesn't change you, then I, I, I don't I don't know what that says, but it definitely changes you and your outlook on life. And for me, being a dad is I mean, there's nothing greater. I mean, having these two people that, you know, I get to interact with and watch them learn and grow and experience the world. Um, I think it's been fantastic. I mean, obviously, as you know, you know, one of my big hobbies is photography and, mm -hmm. you know, I used to go and shoot motorcycle races and I would shoot at the local zoo. I would volunteer at our zoo and take photos of the animals and stuff there. And I really enjoyed that. And when I had kids, I'm kind of like not having the ability to go and shoot the things that I want to shoot anymore because I just don't have the time. And I then just said, Hey, you know, what I'd like to do is maybe, shoot the childhood of my through like my kids eyes you know i want to be able to show my kids what their childhood looked like through mm -hmm. photos so i've got these long-standing projects where i'm essentially both kids have you know a huge vault of photos for both of them and you know one day they're going to get to see what their childhood looked like at least from my perspective mm -hmm. and yeah it's, I, it's helped me grow in my photography it's helped me you know so that hobby plays into my fatherhood and i just i think there's nothing greater than being a dad I, it just it gives me immense pleasure and obviously there's you know, our kids are, they, they can push buttons like no other and they know how to get under your skin. And at the end of the day, though, you know, everything I do in life is to be able to support them and provide them, you know, a good foundation, a good home life and try to start them off in life, you know, on the best foot forward. How did your upbringing affect how you father? Uh, I know that 
in my case, I always wanted to be sort of the best father I could to sort of give them the opportunities that I didn't have and the treatment and, and, and help them have a different experience than I did. How did your sort of relationship with your parents sort of affect how you father? Well, you know, my parents uh, split up when I was pretty young and I, my father was in the military and traveling the world and subsequently had a new family. And so for me, it was my mother and my sister and I, you know, growing up together. And, um, you know, for a long time, I wasn't sure if I was going to want to have kids. But once I decided that I did, kind of like you, I was like, I need to be present. I need to be there for my family. And I need to kind of give them the best chance possible, kind of like you, to to be successful. And, you know, part of the conversation that you're probably hearing now, you know, just in race relations and other things is that, you know, the African-American community, like, you know, having that two-parent home, the, the numbers of that aren't very high. And I feel like that then leads to, you know, things that don't necessarily go well for people and mm -hmm. for me like I want to give my my girls the best shot at life possible and providing them a good nuclear family at home that you know I think their moms and dads obviously we probably parent differently we've got different thing, ways that we do things but having that 360 degree you know things that I might miss my wife picks up on and vice versa and I definitely think it does help you know bring the kids up in a way that's going to hopefully give them the best shot at life to be successful and be able to pursue their dreams and passions and knowing that there's two people there that support them and love them no matter what they do. Yeah, I have friends who are my age who do not have kids and they're great people. But I just always ask them, like, what do you do all day? <laughs> because, you know, as you know, when you have kids, like it takes so much of your, your time. The whole day begins and ends with them, like making sure that they're safe and they're taken care of and they have options and opportunities. And so, like having kids, like I don't even remember what I did before kids. Like how, I must have wasted so much time. I spent so much time sitting at the coffee bean and tea leaf on State Street, just <laughs> having coffee with my buddies and watching the world go by and, you know, hanging out. I mean, I can, I have a vague recollection of what I did before kids, yeah. but none of it is as memorable as having kids. You know, it's just, you have kids and it just changes your whole you know, your whole world. And I, I have friends that don't have kids and they're just, you know, they, you know, you go through this whole thing where they're frustrated because like they want to hang out and you're just constantly not able to. And right. then, you know, for me, I've, you know, we've got a couple of parent pep groups kind of things that we hang out with other families and people with similar age kids. And mm -hmm. that kind of becomes your network, you know, yeah. then your kids start school and they do sports and then you start becoming friends with those parents and the, the teen parents, because you all have something in common. And it's just, I do feel like it's, difficult to stay connected with your friends that aren't kind of involved in that kind of family thing, especially at the age where we are, because realistically we're pouring all of our energy into our kids and, yeah. you know, their activities and, you know, our, you know, adult time comes when we're sitting on the sidelines of a game or up in the bleachers or something. And then we get to have those kind of adult interactions, but by and large, it's just in between chasing our kids around. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about the choice to have your children with a doula and at home. Was that that seems really scary to me. Uh, it was scary to me. And, you know, my wife uh, got certified as a doula and uh, she knew a lot more about kind of that world than I did. But she was pretty great in showing me, you know, we went to some seminars and we watched some documentaries and that were done locally and, you know, got to meet with the midwives and stuff. And over time, like, you know, the first pregnancy, we were seeing our OB pretty regularly, but we were also meeting with the with the with the midwives and, and whatnot. And by the time we were ready to, like, have our child at home, um, I was pretty ready for it. I mean, you, you realize that, you know, babies have been born that way for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. Yep. And it isn't only until like the last hundred years that we've been doing hospital births and that sort of thing. So I felt like the doulas and midwives we were using, they were 
knowledgeable. They were really well trained. And, you know, both of our childbirth experiences at home were different. But, you know, I remember them both pretty well. And I feel like for like my now 10 year old, like she was able to watch her baby sister being born and in a hospital that just would have never occurred. So I, I just I felt like, yeah, it was scary at first. And then the more kind of I was educated and educated myself at, you know, obviously Santa Barbara is not super huge. If there's something that happens where you feel like you need to transition to the hospital, you could probably do it safely and have it be okay. But, you know, it was something that my wife felt strongly about. And, and she said, that's kind of what she wanted to do. And, you know, at the end of the day, like she's the one having the baby. And I feel like she should be able to really choose kind of how that goes. And I'm going to be there just to support it. And it ended up being such a great experience that we did it again. Yeah. As somebody who's you know, with two kids and have did the hospital experience both times. I, I am amazed at what happens in the hospital room. Like it's every story's different. Mm-hmm. The times I've loved my wife the most have been when she's in labor because the amount of excruciating pain that they have to go through and it's all a mystery, you know, like our, you know, it's like doing it at home. I'm sure there's a lot of mystery, but even in the hospital, there's lots of mystery, you know, it's cause it takes a long time to, to deliver. And, there's, you know, labor is long and, you know, it's just sort of like my kid, when he came out, he had like this massive like cone head because of um, how long the pushing was. And uh, it's just such a incredible experience. Like it, it, it's just like you just nothing else matters when you're watching your kid be delivered. Right. You're just like, I can't believe this happens. And this happens every day in yeah. hospitals. And um, I couldn't imagine doing it at home. But then again, that's not something we like uh, researched and invested in. And I'm right. sure if we did. There's a lot of information out there on it. And yeah. I mean, honestly, there's I felt like there was nothing cooler than being able to deliver our girls. And, you know, they get their check. Do you do it in water or like how do you how do you do that? Is it just like uh, you set up a spot and, you know, you know some people do it like through water. Yeah. And, like you know, the, like the Santa Barbara birth center, they've yeah. got their birth center up, up on, up on state. And then, but for us, we did them both at home and yeah. there was periods of time where they allow you to kind of labor the way that you feel comfortable. So there were times where she's in a squatted position. There was times when she was on a big, you know, exercise ball. There were times where she was on all fours, like on the floor, just kind of moving. Yeah. And then on the bed, it just, you go, you want to get in the shower for a bit, get in the shower. Like they yeah. let you, they just follow you throughout the house and just kind of let you do what comes naturally. Right. And then ultimately, you know, you have, you know, your labor experience and then, you know, they do the check, they make sure everything is good with the baby. And then an hour later, they're gone and you're home with your family and you don't have nurses coming in and check in on you. You don't have anyone coming and taking the baby for feedings or other things. And you're just, you're just a family. I don't think my kids saw a doctor for probably the first week or two of their lives. Like they uh-huh. were just, we were at home and obviously the midwives and stuff come over and they check on you regularly and stuff. But uh-huh. yeah, I mean, it can be completely All that stu- when they, when my kids are born. They, you know, take them out, hold, and they take them to this room and right. they do the shots and the eye drops and right. the prick. And like, it's just like all the bright lights, you know, and then they're like, here's your baby, you know? So it's just interesting. It, know, yeah. For of, us, there was none of that, you know, <laughs> there was no shots. There was yeah. no, in, you know, introducing any type of medication or anything right. at that moment. At that moment, the most important thing is just the bonding with the mother and the child and the dad and the child and getting that skin skin contact and just laying in bed together. And yeah, yeah. A, a lot of that stuff I think is probably not necessary. I mean, I mean it may be for going through the hospital process, yeah. but you can do it with all, with all, all that stuff. And it was for me, one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. What about, uh, your daughters play soccer? Am I thinking about that correctly? Am you I are. Those photos? Yeah. yeah, so my daughters, they both play soccer. My youngest, this was just her first season and yeah. she really enjoyed it. And my oldest played uh, 
she played uh, AYSO for a few years, and then she had just um, after AYSO ended, she had uh, made the her team, her age group, uh, all star team. So they got to play in a couple tournaments, and they re- took first place in their last uh, tournament up in Slow pre COVID. Uh-huh. And so then obviously that kind of ended, and then she made another local all star team, and they were you know for the last few months of school doing Zoom. Um, you know, skills and they'd all be, you know, have their laptops out on the grass and they'd, you know, the the coach could watch them and stuff, but they were still interacting and engaging. And then they also both do ballet. So yeah, they're, they're both into ballet. They're both into soccer. And yeah, I mean, we just are really lucky that in our community, there's so many things for the kids to kind of do and we can support them and things that they enjoy. So you spent a lot of Saturday mornings at Gersh Park. Yes. Cheering. You, I, yeah. What's your volunteer? Do you do the ref? Or you do the coaching? I am, or I am the, ref. the ref. So I've refed <laughs> essentially every season, I think, save one uh-huh. since my girls have been playing. So, yes. And then for the all-star team, I was also the, one of the team refs or the team, the dad that was responsible for organizing all the refs and whatnot. So Any of the parents argue with you? Probably not. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I definitely had some interesting exchanges with some of the parents on the sidelines and you know i can't speak for other refs but obviously maybe just based on my personality or the job that i do but you know i'm pretty good at you know communicating with people and kind of making it clear that certain things aren't going to be tolerated especially when we're in an environment that's supposed to be about the kids and supporting them and if you do something that is going to make me feel like you're not doing that then you're probably not going to be able to stay on the sideline yeah yeah. And after that, I didn't really have any issues. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, refs got to put up with so much, so much stuff. They don't get the glory. You know, the coaches get glory. Like you're the coach, the ref. It's like once the game's over, you're done. You know? It gives you a certain <laughs> perspective, though, when you're a spectator and you're not refing about how you see that referee. And uh-huh. you know, I'm not going to be the dad that's up there yelling at the ref because you have to realize that one, they can't see everything, yeah. and two. You know, they were doing the best that they can, and they're probably just out there volunteering. And you know, if I have a problem with it, either get out there or or don't. But uh-huh. You know, I'm not going to be the person criticizing the ref at this point in my life. Well, I coached my son in baseball, and I went all the way up till he was 12. Okay. And I got kicked out of my first baseball game at 12 uh, by the umpire. But oh. I took that as a badge of honor because, you know, like— Well, it's you baseball. Know, you kind of supposed you to— have get, to. You, you, know? you have to get kicked out in baseball. That's like a part of it. There's managers that will go <laughs> storm in the field. You have to your team. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> a part of the culture, right? Yeah, but I never reffed in soccer because um, it's just that's such a tough, you know, it's such a, I always coached, but. It's tough and you're out there on the field moving, but, you know, down, yeah. being out there with my youngest group, for instance, you know, when you got a bunch of four and five-year-olds and you're out there interacting with them and, and watching them just enjoy the game and keeping the game moving. Yeah, my daughter's out there playing, but I'm I'm interacting with all the kids. It doesn't matter what team they're on and put pointing them in the right direction yeah. and just watching them have fun and. It, it was a lot. I really enjoyed refing the younger kid games because it's just they're learning the game, they're figuring it out, and it's just so fun to see them progress. And watching my daughter's team from the first game to the last game, and they were like a different team, and they learned to play well, and they're learning the pass. And it just it's cool to be out there in the moment with them and have knowing that I have a part in in that in that learning for them right. and that development. And along those lines, how are you? impacted by covid in terms of your parenting are your kids home all the time everybody's home Every, how are you adjusting everybody's home yeah. i mean we have you know one family that we're kind of quarantine buddies with and we'll hang out with them you know but we're trying to take the girls on hikes and walks and obviously we always have masks on you know around our necks so if we need to pull it on and you know whatever we can but we aren't really you know kids are social and you know especially with a 10 year old you know they've got friend groups and they've got their soccer group and their ballet group and mm-hmm. to not have that is it, it's tough and to always be at home it's tough you know we're fortunate that we have a home and we're not sharing walls with anyone and we have a decent side yard the girls can go play in and we've got 
you know, four pets that the girls are constantly playing with and interacting with. So we have outlets. Dogs and cats? We have what? two dogs and two cats. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we have got one dog that's seven, and then um, we adopted a dog in January, at the beginning of the year, a puppy, and then we also adopted, I think, last year after our long-time 15-, 16-year-old cat passed away, we adopted two cats. Um, so... Yeah, we've got a full house of pets and everyone needs to be taken care of. And then the kids are pretty good about their roles in that. But yeah, we're, our house is always crazy, but we are together. And although, you know, this whole COVID thing, no one knows when it's going to end or what it's going to look like, but just doing what we can to try to stay healthy and take care of each other and recognizing that, you know, we do also need space. And, you know, right now I'm out for a couple hours away from the home and Mm -hmm. later today I'll give my wife some time to take some time and go walk a dog or something and kind of get out and I'll hang out with the girls. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we go on family walks and other things. And, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, it's interesting and in not knowing what tomorrow looks like, not knowing what the school year next year is going to look like, not knowing what any of their activities are going to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, you know, five, six, six days a week involved between soccer and ballet and tournaments. Like we were pretty busy. So to go from that to now the other end of the extreme, it's definitely interesting and it can definitely see it affecting the girls but very very fortunate that you know my 10 year old and my five-year-old are like best friends and they do a lot together and all of their sisters and they fight i think they take pretty good care of each other yeah that's really cool you know if there is one good thing about covid and you know i i I, what i mean is if there is some something to be taken from this positive is that the amount of family time like forced family time is really really paid off you know in terms of you know i tend to be a workaholic mm-hmm. you know you work you work you work and you're always on the go you're always on the run you're doing this you you know you got kids you're managing them but all of a sudden now you're home and your options are limited for what you can do outside of the house so we're playing games more we're talking more you know we're watching tv more we're watching more movies we're together meals yeah more together and that's something that gets lost when you're so busy doing the hustle. And you're doing so, the hustle. You're online. You're just, there's just so much yeah. external stimulus that goes on that it's really, you know, for COVID, I mean, it's really helping people maybe focus on what's important, mm-hmm. which is family and keeping right. each other safe and healthy and spending that time together. And, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to look back on this time and just realize how much actual time we spent together. And it's really, I think, made all of us maybe slow down a little bit. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot between work and other responsibilities that we have to manage. But ultimately, we're doing everything for these kids. And it's nice that we actually can take a little bit of a break and spend time with the kids that we're doing everything for and really take time to get to know each other and experience things together and and, and, and really be a close family. Yeah. So as we wrap up, can you just um, talk a little bit about uh, sort of where you're headed, where where we're headed from, uh, you know, a country perspective, a local perspective, people listening? Um, you know, what do you want to tell them about um, being a police officer? You know, you know, you are a role model. You know, everybody's a role model to somebody somewhere, you know, and, you know, people look at you and like maybe there's somebody who looks at you and says, hey, I want to do that. I can be like that guy, you know. Um, what do you want to say to sort of people to sort of just remind them about the importance of pursuing your dream or following through with what you want to be in life and just sort of talk to them about the profession too? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I would just say that here in Santa Barbara, we're pretty fortunate. And that's not to say that we shouldn't <clears throat> be attuned to the things that are happening globally. Obviously, if you have an opinion and you want to get out there and speak on that, like our country allows you to do that. You've got your freedom of speech. You go out there and you can protest and do what, what you want to do and try to you know facilitate change that way. 
for me personally, I try to facilitate my change from working within the organization and trying to just make sure that I'm providing my officers with good training and, you know, trying you, to you model have a staff underneath you, right? How so yes, I, I've got 13 officers yeah. that, that generally work for me and work with me and they all come from different walks of life, you know, every different ethnicity you can think of, but they come here every day with the desire to serve the city of Santa Barbara and they, and they do it honorably. They do it well. They treat people with respect and fairness and we're not here to, you know, beat on people or hurt people. Like we're here to just make sure that our community is safe. And there are things that occur, you know, whether it's legislation or, you know, with COVID and, you know, zero bails and people that are out committing crimes are now out, you know, walking the streets and whatnot. And honestly, like, our officers are coming into work every day just trying to provide a good service to the community and trying to keep people safe. That's what we want to do. That's why we do this job. Um, we were called to do this job. We all ended up in this job for a variety of reasons. But every officer that I work with I know has an innate uh, level of care for this community and wanting to take care of the people that live here in Santa Barbara. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier. You know, we had a few, you know, really large protests and you know, yes, the people saw that the police were out there. I mean, I don't think we made a single arrest on any of those protests. We were going to be there to protect people and their right to protest. I think the only person that was arrested during those large scale protests was one counter protester who was there trying to incite the crowd. And mm. But other than that, none of the people that came out to to speak their truth or to protest were arrested. I mean, we are going to support your right to do that. And we maybe ask you to do a couple things to make it so that we can keep everyone safe. But mm. We're not here to step on anybody or prevent anyone from getting out and, and protesting the things that they see wrong. You know, we're law enforcement officers. We, we enforce the laws that are voted on by the people. We're not there to say which laws are important, which ones aren't. We just enforce the law. Yeah. And, you know, if the people get out there and say they want laws changed and they want things to be different and through legislation those things happen, then we enforce those laws. Yeah. You know, but we're not there to try to say that, you know, these laws are important and these aren't. You know, we're going to enforce them equally and what i'd say to anybody that you know wants to get into this line of work there's nothing more fulfilling than being able to get out there and take care of your community and to you know go into situations that for somebody it's potentially the worst day of their life and for me responding i can go and have some sort of impact and maybe make it so that it's not so bad or give them a path to maybe improving or getting somewhere different or getting out of a bad situation or so those are the those are the wins in this job. You know, you every day you have the ability to really help somebody. And, you know, for us as police officers, we go to calls nonstop. But we have to also take a moment to stop and realize that, you know, for that person, they may have never needed the police before. And now you're there. What can you do to, to, to provide them with a level of service that they're going to, you know, feel good about and feel like, man, that cop was really there to help me? Well, thank you, Sergeant Drayton, and appreciate all your service and taking care welcome, of the community yeah. and look forward to seeing you out there while I'm on stories. All right. You're out uh, protecting all of us. Uh, you can find more podcasts like this at SantaBarbaraTalks.com. And thanks, as always, to Kiva Cowork for supporting these podcasts. Thanks.